0: Listen closely as I read the following. In whatever trouble comes to us, we should always set our eyes on God's purpose to train us to think little of this present life and inspire us to think more about the future life. For God knows well that we are greatly inclined to love this world by natural instinct, thus He uses the best means to draw us back and shake us from our slumber so that we don't become entirely stuck in the mire of our love for this world. In some, our entire soul, entangled in the enticements of the flesh, seeks its happiness on earth. So in order to resist this wickedness, the Lord teaches His people about the emptiness of this present life through constant lessons in suffering. Thus so that His people don't promise themselves lofty and untroubled peace in this life, He often permits, God does, permits His people to be troubled and harassed by wars, uprisings, robberies, and other injuries, so that they don't gawk with too much greediness and at frail and tottering riches or rest on those they already possess. He reduces them to poverty, or at least restricts them, to very little wealth through exile, barrenness to land, fire, and other means. So that they aren't enticed too much by the advantages of married life, He lets them be frustrated by the offenses of their spouses, humbles them by the wickedness of their children, However, there are times when God deals more gently with His people, yet even when He does, so that they don't become puffed up with pride or inflated with self-confidence, He sets before their eyes disease and danger to teach them how unstable and fleeting are those good things that come to men who are all subject to death. So indeed, we ought to realize that our souls will never seriously rise to the desire and contemplation of the future life until they've been soaked in scorn for this present life. Those words were written over 500 years ago from the pen of John Calvin. And in those words, you would think that they were written today because the truths that are contained, although they are very sober truths, strike a chord within every single one of our hearts this morning. Where do we turn when the pain of the past tells us by experience that there will be more pain tomorrow? Well, our confidence will be rooted in the fact that the sovereign God of history has promised to take care of us in the future. Just as we sang earlier, the God who helped us in ages past will also be our hope for years to come. It is certainly true that we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. And we learn from our present passage that our fears in the present are assuaged by the God who holds tomorrow. But He's not only the God who holds tomorrow, He is also the God who has proved Himself in the past. And that is why our confidence is in Him This morning, the passage before us tells us that remembering the past and the past work of God will give us an anchor in the present while God's people faithfully wait for the future. And worship, as you know, is a means to remind God's people of the past as they trust Him in the present. While we wait for what God will do in the future, we are comforted by what He has already done in the past. As we look at the world, we don't know the future. Sometimes we don't even know what's occurring in the present. But we know what occurred in the past. And we know that this unchanging God who did marvelous, extraordinary, salvation-delivering activities in the past will certainly be with us in the present. And that someday we will witness those same elements of saving activity. We began looking at Habakkuk's hymn last week and this hymn is glorious because it teaches us Habakkuk is writing this hymn for Israelite corporate worship in the temple. As we saw last week, he calls it in verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. And we saw that that word is a is a musical term. And we also saw that the word prayer is used in various psalms. It's the Hebrew word tefillah, which refers to psalms that are set to music. And so while this is a prayer that Habakkuk is pinning on behalf of the people of God who are waiting for the looming judgment of the Babylonians to invade the capital city of their country Judah, the capital city Jerusalem, Habakkuk is praying to God for His help And he turns this prayer into a hymn that will be used in corporate worship. Now last week we saw in the first two verses what I called the pattern of worship. What is to be the pattern of worship? And we saw last week that it will include these elements of adoration and petition. In verse 2, adoration, O Lord, I have heard the report of You and Your work, O Lord, do I fear. There was a reverential fear and awe of what God did, what He said He was doing, and what He said He was going to do. And we noted the fact that in our corporate worship, in our singing, we are to adore the Lord. We are to have this sort of reverential awe and fear of God as we approach Him. And so the hymn begins with adoration. But then in the second half of verse 2, we saw that it also involves petition. Habakkuk says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. This is a prayer, a petition, a cry to God. God, I know Your wrath is coming in judgment on Your people for their sin, but in Your wrath, remember mercy. This forms the pattern of our worship. Adoration and petition. And as we ended last week in verse 2 with that phrase, in wrath, remember mercy. I want to go back for a moment to the John Calvin quote that I quoted at the beginning. In that quote, John Calvin says, in no uncertain terms, that God has permitted and ordained suffering to release us from our grip on this present world. He does so out of love because God knows that He has redeemed us for something so much better in the future. And in fact, sometimes God directly afflicts us with suffering as an act of chastisement or discipline, much like He did here with sending the Babylonians to invade Judah, but more often than not, it is not a result of chastisement and discipline, but rather our suffering is a gracious work of God to release our grip from this world and to strengthen our faith in Him. And Habakkuk understands that. He understands that the people of God need to pray the end of verse 2, O God, in Your wrath, Please remember your mercy. This is a prayer that even in times of God's wrath, Habakkuk knew that God would always remember His mercy. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our affliction, yes, we may have a wrathful God, but He is also a God of mercy. So that we can live this present life singing Perfect Submission, All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness and lost in His love. Because we know that when we fear our faith will fail, Christ will hold us fast. We could never keep our hold through life's fearful path, for our love is often cold, but He must hold us fast." And as Habakkuk writes this hymn, he he composes this great hymn in chapter 3 for God's people in corporate worship. And where he revealed this pattern of worship in verses 1 and 2, we see in the next chunk of Scripture, verses 3 through 15, what I want to call the path of worship. Habakkuk reveals to us that there is a certain content that is to mark our worship. Worship is to be marked not merely by sound and by the sound of music, but by the content of that music, by words. And so Habakkuk tells us the path of worship, what the content of our worship is. And in these verses he teaches us that remembering the past activities of God will give to us an anchor in the present while we as God's people faithfully wait for the future. He teaches us that the right focus of worship will be God, what God is like, what God has done, what God has promised that He will do. True worship focuses on the person and the character of God that is unchanging. And friends, that is exactly what we need to hear this morning. Because the only thing that will sustain you in the midst of a constantly changing world is the Scripture's promise of an unchanging God. And so in the second part of this hymn, Habakkuk doesn't fool with a future prophecy as you might expect a prophet would do. Rather, he points back to the past salvation acts of God to strengthen the faith of God's people in this mighty Deliverer who will come to the aid of His people. Now, theologians describe verses 3-15 through as a theophany. You might want to write that word down, T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y, theophany. A theophany is a direct and visual manifestation of the presence of God. Now, a theophany, or in a theophany, one does not actually see God himself, but rather sees the powerful manifestation of God, oftentimes through nature and always through the act of war. It is not literally God, but it is the presence of God. That's what a theophany is. If you have trouble understanding that, just think back in the Old Testament to what we might call a permanent theophany that you're familiar with, and that is the Shekinah glory of God that dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple. That was a theophany, the presence of God. Well, here in verses 3-15, through 15, Habakkuk paints for us a picture of God coming on the stage of world history on behalf of His people to deliver them. It's a theophany. And in these verses, there is great comfort for God's people because they are in the midst of very bleak circumstances with the Babylonian invasion looming. And as we read these verses, there is application for us today because every single person in this room, has some level of trial, some level of sorrow, some level of uncertainty regarding what tomorrow will bring. But as I said at the beginning, we might not know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. And we also know who's holding us. For the fulfillment of every single Old Testament theophany, including this one in Habakkuk 3, is the physical presence of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.14 tells us, "...and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." It is this Christ, the very God in human flesh, that has come to deliver us from this present evil world. That those He saves are His delight. Christ will hold them fast. Precious in His holy sight, He will hold them fast. He'll not let their souls be lost. His promises shall last because bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold them fast. And I hope you know this morning, although there might be a lot that you don't know, I hope you know that if you're a child of God, Christ is holding on to you this morning. Christ is is with you right next to you as you sit in this worship service. And what the God of heaven and earth wants you to see from this passage is that the same God who did amazing, delivering, wondrous salvation acts in the past is the same God who is with you in the present. And He's the same God who will come to your side in the future. Now in this passage, as I mentioned before, Habakkuk uses examples from God's past intervention on Israel's behalf. You see images in this passage of God delivering the Israelites from Egyptian bondage and leading them to the conquest of Canaan. And so Habakkuk is painting a picture of their future deliverance by pointing back to their first deliverance. In other words, Habakkuk is telling them, yes, the Babylonians are coming to judge God's people, but in God's wrath, He will remember His mercy. And He will ultimately not allow His people to be obliterated. And as we come into the New Testament, we see that salvation from Egypt prefigures or is analogous to God delivering His people through Christ. Delivering us from our bondage and sin and taking us through the wilderness of this life until we reach the heavenly Canaan. And so this passage not only spoke to Israel in Habakkuk's day, but this passage speaks to us this morning. Now as Habakkuk paints this picture, the shift is subtle, but nevertheless present in this very poetic uh, hymn that he writes, which actually began in verse 2, but now continues. As we look at verses 3 through 15, it can be broken up into two two sections, essentially two sections. In verses 3 through 7... Habakkuk shows God's work in the past for His people Israel. And though it's subtle, and I'll show it to you as we move through it, beginning in verse 8 going through verse 15, Habakkuk shows God's work in the future for His people Israel. And the passage teaches us this simple thought, that remembering the past will give us an anchor to the present while we as God's people faithfully wait for the future. And so there are two discernible points in in Habakkuk's poetry. Verses 3 through 7, we see facts of God's past salvation, which then produces, verses 8 through 15, faith in God's future salvation. Those are the two points. Facts of God's past salvation, verses 3 through 7, and then faith in God's future salvation, verses 8 through 15. And let's begin with number one facts of God's past salvation. Verses 3 through 7. Notice verse 3. Habakkuk continues in his hymn. He says, God came from Timan, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. As Habakkuk writes this, he, he doesn't go into a great deal of detail, he just basically makes in this first larger point about the facts of God's past salvation, he points to two unchanging facts related to God's character in His past salvation. And the first one, we just read it, concerns the fact of God's glory. Glory. God's glory, as we read here in verse 3, Habakkuk praises God recalling um, certain geographical locations associated with God's glorious presence with His people in the time of their exodus. Teman is the name of Esau's grandson, but here it's a reference to the peoples who lived in the land of Edom. And then as he refers here to Mount Paran, this was a mountain that was located in the Sinai Peninsula, in the wilderness there. Likely it is a reference to Mount Sinai from which Israel as a nation was constituted. And you remember in Leviticus 11.45, it's where the Lord appealed to Israel and He said, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God, therefore be holy, for I am holy. And that's why in verse 3, He refers to Him as the Holy One from Mount Paran. The Holy One who passed through these geographical areas, never leaving the side of Israel. This was the area that we could call the theater of God's glory from which He eventually brought Israel into the land of Canaan. And through these wilderness wanderings, though often God's judgment was upon Israel because she was obstinate, These were also periods where God's glory was on display. So we read at the end of verse 3 that His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His glory was on display. Now if you skip back to the middle of verse 3, you see a word there, selah. Now this is the only time that selah is used in the Bible other than in the Psalms. It's used throughout the Psalms, but here in chapter 3, it is used three times once, at, once in verse 3, once verse 9, once verse 13. Now, the meaning of this word, we don't know, but all commentators essentially agree that it is designating some sort of musical break, a sort of pause for reflection or for meditation. And I think maybe this is a good place for us to pause to reflect for a moment, to remind ourselves that God is with us in our wilderness. Folks, you need to understand this morning that you are an exile passing through this strange and dangerous land, and there are many sort of treacherous things that surround you, but God is by your side. This world is not your home, and God is with you every step of the way. I'll go a step beyond that, no pun intended, and say that God is actually a few steps ahead of us, though He's right here with us. You remember the Lord told Joshua through Moses right before the conquest, these words in Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Listen, folks, this is the same God that we have today. The God and Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who delivers. The God who saves. The God who parts the Red Sea. The God who parts the rivers of the Jordan. The God who will bring us safely into the land of Canaan. And He does it for His glory. His glory fills the earth, and it fills the heavens. Habakkuk is writing this hymn to praise God. And notice verse 4, he continues, speaking about God, His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. He's still talking about God's glory on display, and likely here this is an allusion to God's presence on Mount Sinai. Whereas verse 4 says, his brightness was like the light. That God's glory is so radiant, you remember that Moses' face even shined as he descended Mount Sinai to give the law to God's people. And then Habakkuk says that rays flashed from his hand. This is referring not to Moses' hand, but to God's hand. This is a symbol of strength that was often depicted among the false storm gods of the ancient Near East who would be pictured with bolts of lightning coming from an upraised hand. And God says there is only one and true God and He has power over all false gods. He has a lightning bolt that's coming from His hand. This is signifying the power of God. It's an anthropomorphism. Don't try to write that word down. Uh, an anthropomorphism depicts what God is like. God doesn't physically have a hand, but whatever God's hand is like, it is much more mighty and much more powerful than any false god. This is the God of glory. And notice the end of verse 4, "...there He that is God veiled His power." This is perhaps communicating the fact that to see the full force of God's power would result in Israel's utter destruction. Moses would have been incinerated if he would have seen God's face. For to behold, God in the fullness of His glory would result in destruction. 1 Timothy 6.16 God lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. And God warned Moses in Exodus 33.20 You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. This is God's glory on display. And when we put the brakes on for a moment and think about the fact this is a hymn and this was meant to be implemented in Israelite corporate worship in the temple, we are reminded that God's glory ought to be the theme of our worship services. It is our knowledge and our awareness of God's glory and His splendor that prompts worship. Listen, folks, this is why so much worship today is completely unsatisfactory. Worship today is man-centered, not God-centered for the most part. And Habakkuk is giving no glory to man in this passage. All the glory is going to God. It is God-centered as this praise and this prayer paints a glorious picture of an unchanging, glorious God. And so that's the first unchanging reality or fact about God's character that Habakkuk points to as he gives these facts of God's Past salvation, he refers to God's glory in verses 3 and 4. But then I want to move to verses 5 through 7, where he gives a second fact. Not only does he speak about God's glory, but secondly, he speaks about God's sovereignty. Verses 5 through 7. I love this because God's glory and God's sovereignty go hand in hand. You can't have a glorious God without having a sovereign God. You can't have an all powerful God without a God deserving the glory that is due His name. So notice verse 5. You'll recognize this language. Before Him went pestilence and plague followed at His heels. God's sovereignty is depicted here in the pestilence and the plague that God sent to Egypt to save His people. And then verse 6, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. This is God's sovereign control over the natural realm so that even natural disasters reveal God's control over them. So that even mountains crumble at the voice of God and bow low. I think that perhaps the picture of mountains being scattered and th- this language of everlasting hills sinking low along with the phrase that God shook the nations expresses the same concept basically of Philippians 2 that at the knee of Jesus ev- or at-, at Jesus every knee will bow the age-old hills or the everlasting hills as they're referred to here were viewed by people in the ancient Near East as being the dwelling place of the Canaanite gods, the Baals and the Ashtoreth. These were household gods of fertility and prosperity, and they had shrines on the the top of hills near every village. And it's as if God is saying that the true One who has everlasting ways is going to make these mountains and these dwelling places of these false gods crumble and be brought low before the feet of God. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 5 and the false god Dagon, whose image fell face down after the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. It's as if God was saying, I'm going to cut off your hands and your head, Dagon, which his head and his hands were on the threshold, 1 Samuel 5 says, and you're going to bow to me. I am the God of the Israelites and I will deliver my people. Just as God forced Dagon to fall down and to lose his Head and to lose His hands, which by the way, had no power in them, so God will cause every false image and every false god and everyone who is in every false religion and false cult bow the knee to the God of heaven and earth. He's going to shake the nations someday. That includes every Muslim. That includes every Buddhist. That includes every Hindu. There is only one way of salvation and that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is the only means of deliverance. And all of this imagery surrounding Israel's deliverance from Egypt is pointing forward to the ultimate deliverance that comes through Jesus Christ. Notice verse 7. He continues, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Cushan and Midian are likely names of nomadic peoples that, that roamed the Sinai Peninsula and, and from one of these peoples, or maybe even both of these peoples, we don't know for certain, is where Moses found his wife. Habakkuk is saying that these peoples trembled because they saw the mighty acts of God on behalf of Israel at the Exodus, in the wilderness, with the thunder and the lightning and the earthquake at Mount Sinai. And as you read these past events of history, you may say, what sort of encouragement Does this offer me today? And beloved, these facts regarding God's past salvation have application to us since the Exodus prefigures our own deliverance through Jesus Christ. When liberals write about miracles in the Old Testament or the New Testament, they write them off. They say, oh, Jesus really lived, but He wasn't resurrected. Or, yeah, the Israelites were delivered, but that was some sort of natural catastrophe. God didn't literally part the Red Sea with the breath of His nostrils, as Exodus 15 says. But my friends, if the past miracles of God are not real, then you have no reason to believe in that God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that apart from the resurrection, we are of most people to be pitied. Every miracle that is recorded in the Old Testament in the New Testament is truth. Every single act of deliverance of the Israelites and parting the Red Sea and parting the Jordan and bringing water from the rock and bringing manna from heaven was a direct providential act of a sovereign, miraculous God. And as you reflect on the miracles of God in delivering His people in the Old Testament... Your faith will be confirmed in all the New Testament miracles, including the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The comfort of our past salvation in Christ is our only comfort. We know that He is with us in the present because He has saved us through Christ in the past. And that is what Habakkuk is reminding us of, that remembering the past gives an anchor to the present. I remember hearing of a pastor who had a plaque uh, in his office behind his desk, and the plaque said these words, Jesus is the answer, now what's your question? And day after day people would come into his office and they would sit in a chair across from his desk and the first thing they would see is that plaque, Jesus is the answer, now what's your question? And the pastor did not begin by saying, now what's your question? He began by saying, Jesus is the answer. Now what's your question? Now that is a simple illustration. But the truth of it must strike our hearts that whatever you're facing today, whether it's trials or sorrow, and whatever you may face tomorrow and have to endure tomorrow, your questions may change, but the answer remains the same. Jesus is, is the answer. Jesus means salvation. Jesus means deliverance. Jesus means hope. Jesus means grace. Jesus means help. Jesus means faith. He's the answer. And if you have Him, it doesn't matter what the question is. He is your sufficiency in the midst of your deficiency. He is your rock in the midst of the storm. He is your anchor for the present because you know what He did in the past through Christ on Calvary. And if you have Him, it doesn't matter what the questions are in the midst of your trouble. And if you don't have Him, it doesn't matter if you think you have all the answers in the world. The only answer that matters is Jesus Christ. But there's even more good news here. As Habakkuk writes this hymn, because of what Christ did in the past, you can trust Him in the future. And that's where Habakkuk now turns in verses 8 through 15. I've called this section of Scripture, verses 3 through 15, a look back to the future. That's not a reference to the old movie, Back to the Future. But it is pointing to the fact that as we look into the past, we're able to see the future. Because as we look into the past and we see what God has done in delivering us, we have confidence for what He's going to do in the future. So we see that the facts of God's past salvation, verses 3 through 7, now give way to faith in God's future salvation, verses 8 through 15. And the shift may be subtle, but Habakkuk is moving from the past to the future. And you can see it because now in verse 8, he begins to immediately talk directly to God. He's done with the history lesson, and now he's talking to God concerning the present circumstances of Israel. And here he portrays the Lord as a warrior, a divine warrior who will bring future deliverance or salvation to his people. He's out to prove, you could say, that God will remember mercy in the midst of his wrath. And so, as he writes, now you're going to still see terminology surrounding the Exodus because that's a way of Habakkuk saying that, God is unchanging. This is the same God that delivered you in the Exodus. But he's not talking about the Exodus anymore, even though he might be using that language. He's now talking about the future. And his point is, this God of the Exodus will be the God of another Exodus. God will judge the Babylonians for invading you. So notice he begins with a series of rhetorical questions. Verse 8. And this strengthens his faith, and hopefully the faith of God's people. He says, "'Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord?' Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? A series of rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question doesn't want a response from the group. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is implicit in the question. And the answer is, of course not. God's anger wasn't against rivers and seas. When He parted the Red Sea and He parted the Jordan, God was fighting for His people. God was fighting against evil. So that God figuratively rode on horses and a a chariot like a warrior. I mean, this is sort of the opposite. He's saying that really, He is the warrior that the Egyptians were not. He is the one on a chariot. And He's not going to be suffocated by the ways of this world. He is a warrior. Psalm 68, 17 says the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. God's angels are not sweet little naked babies with wings. They're warriors. And they're God's warriors. Because God is the ultimate warrior. So we read in verse 9, this continuing language, you strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah, you split the earth with... Rivers. This is the divine warrior imagery continuing, picturing God with, with arrows in His bow. God's arrows, I believe, are His curses. We read in Jeremiah 47 that God's judgments against Philistine were seen as the sword of the Lord. Listen, God's greatest weapon is His mouth. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews tells us, and God will shoot forth arrows of judgment from his mouth toward his enemies. And he does it in such power that it results in whatever God wants the judgment to result in. Notice the end of verse 9. You split the earth with rivers. And, and I might should go back to that word Selah. You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah, just think about that for a moment. God is a God of judgment. Habakkuk doesn't want us to forget this. Certainly, he's a God of grace and mercy and deliverance. He delivers his people. But anyone who stands between him and his people will be judged. Anyone who rejects his salvation through Christ will be judged. And that's something worth thinking about. Because if you don't think about it, you can end up in a Christless eternity in hell. Selah, think about it. You split the earth with rivers. This is potentially an allusion to the thunderclouds that flooded the earth at God's command in Genesis. That was an act of judgment, was it not? God gave the word and the floods came. Verse 10, The mountain saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands On high. Clearly, this is imagery of the Exodus and the water coming over the Egyptian army. But he's talking about the future. And he's saying, God is a warrior. Just as he came to your side in the Exodus, he's going to come to your side in the future. I love what Walt Kaiser says. He says, God is a warrior. And as a warrior, he is no ordinary soldier. His weapons and the scope of his battle are cosmic. No mortal or earthly power will be able to withstand his assaults. We've seen that time and time again throughout history. Verse 11 the sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. This is probably an allusion to Joshua's battle and his victory over the Amorites at at Gibeon. This was a miraculous eclipse where the sun and the moon stood still in their place. Listen, this is one eclipse I can actually get excited about. This is one eclipse I want to keep hearing about. Because this was a supernatural cessation of heavenly bodies by the hand of God to use Joshua to judge evil people and to deliver His own people. He's the God of the eclipse. He's the God of nature. He's the God of war. He's the God of the sword. He's the God of the arrow and of the bow. And we learn that God is after His enemies. God has no beef with mountains and rivers and rocks and seas. The mountains writhe. The rivers are afraid. No, God has no beef with them. He's out to destroy sin. He's out to destroy sinners. He's out to ultimately destroy Satan with judgment, with his white, hot, holy wrath. And so he reveals the target. It's not nature. Notice the target in verse 12. He says, You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Now this this is an enveloping phrase here. God didn't just thresh Pharaoh in the Red Sea. God didn't just thresh the Babylonians. God's going to thresh Satan. God's going to thresh every nation. Like ancient threshing floors of grain. He's going to stomp His enemies. He's going to crush them. Does that language sound familiar? Genesis chapter 3. That the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Oh, this this passage is going directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is reminding New Covenant saints of our great deliverance through Jesus Christ. So notice verse 13. Here's the key verse in the, in the whole book of Habakkuk. Other than maybe Habakkuk two four that the righteous shall live by faith. Here it is. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. Selah is after that because We need to pause and reflect upon the prophetic nature of verse 13. This is amazing. Notice it again. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Now literally, in the Hebrew, that reads your anointed one. And when you think back to the Old Testament, the anointed one was the one anointed with oil by the prophet to set a man apart for kingship. David was the anointed one. But the anointed king gave its fullest expression in the Messiah. And literally this word means Messiah, the anointed one. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed? You say, well, Christ didn't need delivered. Christ didn't need saved. That's correct. But God in preserving Israel and delivering them from the Egyptians and delivering them from the Babylonians... God was preserving the Messianic line, keeping it open so that Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah, could be born so that He could crush the head of the serpent, the devil. Just as promised in Genesis 3. So verse 13 says, "...you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck." Sort of a a message of shame, is it not? Laying him bare, crushing his head, Oh, this is a reference to Pharaoh. It's a reference to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. It's a reference to Satan. It's a reference to every evil leader that God will ultimately defeat wicked. He's done it through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all of these verses are painting for us what we could call an historical collage of how God works historically in defeating His enemies. God always has the last word. God always wins. And what Habakkuk is telling his people is that God hasn't changed. He's still powerful. So notice verse 14, sticking with the divine warrior theme, he reminds us that whether the enemy is Pharaoh, Babylon, or any other wicked nation that knowing God is unchanging will strengthen our faith. Verse 14, "...you pierced with His own arrows the heads of His warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret." Our mighty warrior overpowers the enemy, slaying them by their own arrows. He, he uses their weapons against themselves. He pierces their heads. This is a description of God's judgment in the last day, I think. That God is coming against those who came against His people like a whirlwind to scatter them. That again is reference back to the Egyptian army that charged and chased the Israelites. God is coming to deliver us. Verse 15, You trampled the sea with Your horses, the surging of, of mighty waters. As God did in the days of the Exodus, God is pictured as the One who trampled the sea with His horses. He, he surged the mighty waters or churned them he overtook his enemies and destroyed them just the way that he destroyed Pharaoh's army. Habakkuk saying God's going to do this to the Babylonian. The spirit of God is telling us this morning that God is going to do this to all of his enemies. And why? Why is God going to do this to all of his enemies? Flip back with me to chapter 1 in verse 13. As Habakkuk says to God, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. This is a holy God. This is a God who hates wickedness. This is a God who refuses to let wickedness abound permanently. The wicked will be held accountable. And Habakkuk is teaching us that remembering the past gives an anchor to the present while God's people faithfully wait for the future. That you can face the uncertainty of tomorrow because of the certainty of God's salvation through Jesus Christ yesterday. You can face the, uh, today's problems because of yesterday's solution in the gospel. And folks, that's where it begins and that's where it ends. There is no other comfort. All we have is the Lord Jesus Christ. All we need is Jesus Christ, His sinless life, and His sin-bearing substitutionary atonement. It is Christ, which is the sufficiency, that meets any deficiency in our lives. He's all we have. Jesus is the answer. Now, what's your question? What's your question about what tomorrow holds? The solution is already found in Christ. And you know, I need to hear this. You need to hear this. Because as you go through life, you find yourself in the midst of trials. And you find yourself being turned and tossed this way and that way. But what you need to be reminded of is that God is above your problems. And you need to get with God above those problems. If you've ever flown above the Mississippi River, there are places where it flows north. There are times and places where it flows west. But ultimately and finally, it flows south. And so are the sovereign purposes of God. God's purposes may appear in your life to be frustrated and turned and twisted and manipulated, but God is the captain of the ship of your life, and it's God's purpose of the ages that the reign and kingdom will belong to God Almighty. So that the fear of the unknown can be replaced with the facts of what's known. The past, therefore, becomes an anchor for the present as we wait for the future and God's sovereignty becomes the soft pillow that we lay our heads down on at night in the midst of that dark night because we know that He's not only all-powerful, but He is all-powerful to deliver us through His only begotten Son that He sent to die on our behalf. You see, the problem of tomorrow's trials is not that you don't know what they are and you can't see them. The problem is is that you're not seeing Jesus as sovereign over them. It reminds me of the great theologian Augustine. Augustine was once confronted by a man that showed him his idol and said, here is my idol. And then he pointed to the sun and he pointed to the sky that the sun was in. And he said, here is my God. Where is yours? And Augustine said, I didn't show Him my God, not because I didn't have one to show, but because He did not have eyes to see Him. Do you have eyes to see God in your present circumstances? The best way to see him is to look in the past. What has He done for you at Calvary? What has He done for you on the cross to deliver you from sin, to promise you salvation? Have you forgotten that He's a good God? That He's a gracious God. That yes, in His wrath, He always remembers mercy. You see, as we look back at the past, we're able to see into the future. And our faith is strengthened. Regardless of our trouble, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. May He receive the glory. May we recognize His sovereignty. And may we be comforted by these truths. Let us pray. Our Father, we are grateful. We're grateful, so grateful, for the clarity of Your Word. Lord, it's it's so clear that You are a God of great might. That You are a God of promises. Age-old, ancient promises reaching back all the way to the garden where You promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And even in this sort of obscure, minor, prophetic book. We see in Habakkuk 3 an allusion to the crushing of the head of the house of the wicked. Undoubtedly a reference to Satan. Father, we thank You that through Christ we have the victory. We thank You that we can't earn our salvation. It is You who delivers us. Israel didn't deliver themselves. You delivered them. We can't deliver our ourselves you must deliver us so we thank you for this and father we pray that whatever it is that we might be facing that you would give us the ability to look back to the past that it might provide for us an anchor for the present and for the future that we might trust that you're an unchanging God who is glorious who is mighty in salvation that we might have a degree of peace as we lay our heads down on the pillow of your sovereignty We pray and ask all of these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.